This Prop Talk recording is a news and opinion product that is the property of Original Prop Blog LLC, all rights reserved. Original Prop Blog LLC is not responsible for any statements or opinions expressed by the guests of this program. Live on tape from the OPB studios in Northern California, it's Prop Talk. Brought to you by the Original Prop Blog, we're making analog connections across the world. Each podcast features one-on-one chats with special guests to discuss the hobby of collecting original movie props and costumes. The Original Prop Blog is the original source of news, information, and opinion about authentic popular culture artifacts and memorabilia from film and television. Now, let's join our host, Jason DeBorg. Well, that's what you that's what you got the girl on that for. Yeah, exactly. So, the prop, prop, prop. yeah, so it sets these expectations of, you know, wow, this sounds really professional. And then it cuts to me, and I'm like, oh, hey, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> you have to put all this in uh, for complete naturalism. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, so you ready to go? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. So, welcome to Prop Talk. And thank you. Today, I'm talking with Brandon Allinger from Prop Store, which used to be Prop Store of London, and now it's just Prop Store, right? Yeah, we kind of went away from Prop Store of London a little bit just because the Los Angeles presence has grown. Um, It was always difficult for me to call people and explain that I'm from the Prop Store of London in Los Angeles. That was always a tough one. It's a little easier now to just say Prop Store. Yeah. And we sort of did that in conjunction with the rebranding that we did earlier this year where we launched the new website and the new logo and everything. Yeah. So how long have you been working with Prop Store now? Uh, I started with Prop Store in around April of 2007. Uh, that was when I basically relocated to California and we started a small office out here. And before that, I was sort of uh, consulting and, and doing bits and pieces with Stephen and the guys over there. Um, but I guess you'd say officially April 2007. Okay. And how old are you now? I'm 26. I'll be 27 <laughs> in a couple of weeks. <laughs> That's crazy. So, <laughs> you know, we became acquainted way back. I think probably around Long this, time ago. Yeah, I mean, I think pretty much the same time I, you know, got to know Tom Spina and other people back on the RPF. But you've been around in the hobby, like, way, way longer than me, which is crazy because you're basically 10 years younger than me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I will not necessarily in the originals hobby, but I was collecting replica props for, for a long time, you know, since maybe like 96 or something. Um, and at that time there was basically message boards on AOL America online and I got onto AOL, which was like my first experience with the internet, maybe in '94 or '95, because I was looking for Star Wars toys, um, which I'd previously been buying from friends' older brothers and things like that. You know, like a lot of people, I kind of got into it through Star Wars and through Star Wars toys, and then that led me to on AOL these collecting boards where people were talking about props and replica props and um, masks and, and things like this. And that was kind of my first exposure to the idea that people were even making or collecting these things, these things meaning replicas. Um, and then I kind of got, got hooked on that, and, and it went from there. So was that like back in, what, 93, 94, something like that? Um, I don't know if it was that early. If, if, if I Google myself today, there are <laughs> posts on Usenet from 1995 where I was looking for Star Wars toys. Yeah. So... I would say I would say probably ninety five or maybe a little before that, maybe ninety four. Okay, yeah, because I remember when I first really got into you know quote the World Wide Web, I got on CompuServe and AOL, and I was really into um, like video games, vintage video games stuff back then. So it seemed like those were the boards that had actual groups, other than the um, what was the what is it called? Was it Usenet? Like the alt Usenet. dot this group. right, right, yeah. right. So yeah, there was there was a big Star Wars one. It was Rec Art something Star Wars. Yeah, and I rem- I remember from back then, um, 
Gus Lopez because I collected Star Wars toys back then too. And it's like, I have memories of, and I didn't know him. I mean, I think I might've exchanged a couple messages with messages with him at some point, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think he's probably the first name that I really caught onto back then. And, you know, I didn't collect props back then, but that was yeah, mid nineties. No, yeah. I had the same experience finding his site, toys, com, like, you know, freaking out over all that stuff. Yeah. So you played a part in starting um, one of the boards about replica props, right, on um, AOL? Well, it wasn't on AOL. Yeah, I mean, it was it was the board that later became the RPF, that we never called it the RPF at that was, time. Was that like SW fans or something, something like that? Yeah, but it actually started even before that. It was... Um, it started just because I was a member of these AOL boards where people were discussing props and things, and then I had somehow made contact with a handful of guys who were not on AOL but were interested in the same stuff, and so I was sort of communicating with all of them through email, and then I was on these message boards on AOL, and I would sort of say, like, oh, you've got to talk to this guy, you've got to talk to this guy, but it was difficult to play the middleman, so I figured it would be better if we could just get some central board where AOL people and non-AOL people could could all meet and discuss this stuff. So I created some kind of board, whatever it was called at that time. And I think the first one was on like B scene software. And that was probably around 1997. And then in 1999, uh, a friend of mine started a website called SWFans.net that was sort of all about the, the race for the new Star Wars film for episode one to beat the Titanic box office record. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, which seems weird today. But um, <laughs> in conjunction with that, he had these message boards on there. And then, you know, I talked to him and I said, why don't we move this prop board onto this SW fans board? Um, and I think that was when it really grew because that tr- site was getting heavy traffic because there was just so much hype around Star Wars at that time. And, uh, you know, it was started by a friend of mine from high school and like he started getting paid for advertising on it and we were all just like blown away by that <laughs> that he was making money off this website. So, uh, so that was when it really grew and then at some point, sometime after that, I don't know when exactly, I basically got got out of it. I sort of relinquished control because there was another party who was starting up another board and, you know, it was going to be the be-all, end-all board with, all these features and bells and whistles and whatever. And I just said, look, there's no reason to have competing prop boards. You know, if this is going to be the one, why don't you guys just manage it? Um, which, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of headaches associated with sort of running and moderating a board like that, as you know, and, uh, there's not a lot of thanks for it. So (laughs) I I was sort of happy to just, just see it, see it go or have it go into someone else's hands really. Yeah. So how much do you think the new star Wars, trilogy fueled kind of i mean it was a lot of it just um serendipitous that you know the internet's kind of growing and then there's this new star wars movie and then it's like uh what's the commercial you got peanut butter and my chocolate kind of a thing (laughs) yeah i guess i don't know i've never thought about that much but i mean i guess it makes sense because certainly before that it was you know, it's like the star wars dark ages and that was that was when i was a kid and i was really into it. it was sort of like the the early 90s and stuff, and then finally you had those books that came out by Timothy Zahn. Oh, yeah. And, you know, what was that, 92 or 93? And, I mean, other than that, there was, like, nothing on Star Wars. And then comic books started coming around and things like that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was really episode one and the Internet when, when I started to feel the hype and when, when Star Wars sort of became mainstream. You know, before that, it never really felt mainstream to me. Right. So how did you first get introduced to star wars since it pretty much everything came out before you were born right yeah i mean i was born a few months after jedi came out so i don't i don't know honestly because i don't remember like my first exposure or anything i just remember i was always really into it and like from a very young age we had it like taped off of television and i would just sit around and watch it and uh i remember you know the tv guide would come out every week that would tell you what movies were on that week so i'd flip through it and check every week for the star wars movies (laughs) Um, and yeah, I don't know, I guess I, you know, probably just television or video or something like that. And then I had friends, older brothers who had the toys and everything. So I would see that kind of stuff around, even though it was gone from the, the Toys R Us shelves by that time, by the late eighties. Um, 
but I just, you know, just grew up on it and always loved it. And, and through that started trying to collect it and collect the toys. And then through that started collecting replica props. And then from that started collecting original props, which is, you know, a progression that I think a lot of collectors have taken. Yeah. So, so what was the transition from replica props to, you know, original real props? Uh, well, I think the first real prop I ever got was a pair of Starship Troopers dog tags, which someone had on, on the replica prop forums, you know, probably around 97, 98, shortly after the movie came out. Um, and, you know, they were just background holographic dog tags. But at that point, just to have anything that was actually used in a movie was like a huge deal. Um, so, you know, from there, I, I started getting into visiting locations and seeing some of the Star Wars locations. And a couple of years after that, in 2000, I went to Tunisia for the first time, and I saw a lot of the Star Wars and the Raiders sites there, and I found bits and pieces there that were, you know, rather than being from Starship Troopers, these were from Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark. So that was like a mind-blower for me to just have anything that was on screen in those classic films. Um, yeah, I remember, I, think, I remember at one point on the movie prop forum... Um, you were giving away foam. <laughs> we gave away foam. Yeah, that was, it was right before one of the Star Wars shows. Uh, I went with a group of people out to Buttercup Valley where uh. they built the Jabba sail barge set. And at, at that time, it may still be like this, there was, there's just a lot of debris all over the desert everywhere. Nothing recognizable, but just, you know, bits of foam and wood and stuff like that that was definitely used in constructing the set. Uh, so we brought back, like, trash bags of this stuff. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming this is what, what you're thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's not some other foam. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, uh, it, and then we gave it away at the Star Wars convention. I think we were later giving it away on the internet. And, yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. There's a lot, of, a lot of interest in that stuff because it was from the films and it was free, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So I remember, um, I think it was when we, when we were both admins on the movie prop form, I remember changing your little avatar picture that, you know, is next to your post to the an actual foam. piece of foam. Yeah. I think it's still like that. I'm sure no one knows what the hell that is. I barely know what it is. <laughs> so, and then you also, I remember you had some of those big um, bunker panels from uh, Endor. Yeah. So that was another find that came through a filming location. Um, you know, after I did Tunisia, I wanted to see some of the places in, in California. And this is when I was still living in Maryland. So I think in 2003, I, I did like a week trip to California, first to Buttercup Valley, you know, where they built the, the sail barge where we found the foam and stuff. And then I went to Crescent City and Smith River, which is the Redwood Towns in Northern California, where they shot everything related to Endor for Return of the Jedi. Um, and I, I met, you know, a handful of people there who worked on the film. And one guy had taken five of these fiberglass panels from the side of the Endor bunker and uh, he was part of the demo crew that was striking the set at the end, and they were supposed to be hauling all this stuff to the dump. So rather than take it to the dump, he decided these flat panels would make a good fence. So we took them home and uh, nailed them into a two-by-four frame, and, and they were basically the fence that divided his yard from his neighbors for, for 20 years. Um, and then, you know, I, I met him, talked to him for a while, and finally worked out a deal with, with Gus Lopez, you know, who, who I sort of knew by that time because we were both interested in filming locations to go back there and buy these things off this guy and pay to have another fence built for him. So, so <laughs> I flew out to, you know, Seattle and met up with Gus and then we drove down and got those things and, and drove them back up. And then we had to figure out how to ship them across to Maryland. And, uh, they were great because they were more intact and more complete than anything we found in, in Tunisia. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was kind of my, my first exposure to stuff uh, was, was just, you know, finding bits and pieces of the locations, really. Yeah. So I know you're also a big fan of the um, Raiders of the Lost Ark trilogy. And it's kind of funny because you're sort of like the Indiana Jones of the hobby where you go <laughs> out and you find all the stuff and you even found um, one of the idols used in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I think is, you know, pretty pretty remarkable in itself so when you went to Kauai and some of those locations if i remember right you had a gps um device to help you find specific locations correct 
Yeah, yeah, I did. And in some of the places, you know, I was in touch with guys like Gus Lopez and, and other people who had been to these places. So I had good directions um, with with the Raider sites in Hawaii. I don't think I'd necessarily talked to anyone who had been there, but there was some information on, on the web about where they did filming. And then I actually just, I was there for a couple of days uh, just on a family vacation. We, we went out there one year for family vacation. And, you know, it was a big thing for me while I was there to try to go find these Raiders filming sites. Um, so again, I started talking to local guys who worked on the film and I got in touch with some people who, who knew some stuff and, you know, armed with screen captures and photo prints and, and things like that. I went looking for all these different locations and I found, I think, most of the places used in, in Raiders. Um, and at the same time, I was always asking people if anyone had kept any souvenirs or photographs or anything like that. And, uh, Someone told me I had to speak to this this one gentleman who had worked on the film, and I couldn't get in touch with him. Um, I, I, I tried a few times to reach him. I finally got in touch with him about a week after I got home to Maryland, which is you know a long way from Hawaii. Right. And he said, uh, he said, oh yeah, yeah, I worked on that. And he says, do you remember the little gold guy that was sitting <laughs> on the statue on the pedestal, and then he steals it, and the whole temple starts to fall apart? And I'm like, yes. And he says, yeah, I've got, got one of those. <laughs> uh, they're like, hmm, okay. Um, and so, you know, I talked to him for a while, and the story sounded legitimate. It sounded plausible. And I just kept pursuing it, and I kind of talked to him every few months. And uh, and I was trying to get him to send me some pictures or something, and I, I never could. Um, and finally, I decided I just had to go out there and meet this guy and actually see this, this guy, this thing in person. Mm-hmm. And... You know, I did probably a year, maybe a year and a half or something after that first trip. I went back out there and, uh, and, and I saw it and, you know, I, I felt immediately that it was the real deal, even though it was in poor condition. And, you know, it, it had those eyes, those baby doll eyes, which were different from any replica idol I'd ever seen. Uh, and so we were able to work out a deal and, and I brought it home, which was pretty great. At that time, it was, it was you know, it was an amazing find for me. It was definitely, the best thing in my collection is the best thing I've come across is kind of a, a mind blower. It's fantastic. Yeah. Pretty amazing. So you also, is it Norway where they shot um, some of the empire strikes back scenes? Yep. Yep. Uh, Norway, a town called Finsa, which is in about the middle of the country between um, Oslo and Bergen. Um, I went out there in 2005 with Andy Golding, um, who I'd met through some of the prop collecting forums. He's a big Star Wars collector in England, and uh, Stephen Lane from Prop Store. Um, and, you know, we just went to see the sites, really. And at that time, no one that I knew had really been to Norway to look for the Star Wars sites. So, again, we were, I was just trying to get in touch with people who had been involved with the production back in 1979 and, uh, you know, just, just trying to make connections and, and find someone who could show us these places. And we did, and we were able to find you know, a number of the key sites and take out the photos and match up mountains in the backgrounds and things like that. And didn't find any props. Uh, we had hoped to, but we didn't find anything there. They do have a rebel hat at the hotel, which of course I tried to buy, but they, they wouldn't <laughs> sell it to us. And everyone that I've talked to who's gone there since has also tried to buy it and has also walked away unsuccessful. So uh, I think it's fair to stay, but that's kind of cool, you know, because it's good if, if someone ventures out that far there's something nice there to, to see which is cool yeah what was the weather like when you were there uh it was very cold but it, but it was sunny i mean it was clear you know you're up there on a glacier so you're freezing cold and i remember it was funny because we took this train out there from oslo and it's sort of like a four-hour train ride or something and the whole time steven and andy and i are just playing cards and <laughs> you know getting darker so we're at some point you're not really looking out the window anymore there's not much to see and finally we realize that we're getting close we're sort of 10 minutes away or something we look around there's not many people left on the train and we're all sitting there in like our jeans and nikes and everyone who is still on the train is in like full-on arctic survival gear (laughs) (laughs) and and so we finally stop and this one guy as we're pulling up he's like clamping on his skis and he literally hops (laughs) off the train in his skis and goes like sledding down the hill and I jump out in like my white Nikes and I'm sort of, we're just looking around like, where do we go? <laughs> and there's like no lights. There's nothing there. It's deserted. You know, there's, there's only one hotel there. We found someone to ask and they pointed us towards the hotel and then we found it. We were fine. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely a little bit off the beaten path. 
Yeah, so it's a good thing that Tim wasn't a big Star Wars fan because he would have been there in his shorts, right? <laughs> yeah, Tim would have been freezing if he wasn't uh, completely <laughs> impervious to cold. The cold just doesn't affect him, so oh, it doesn't. probably would be fine. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So how much um, effort have you put into kind of documenting all these trips? I know I saw a lot of pictures that, at the time from your um, ra- uh, Kauai trips, you know, looking at the Raiders locations. Do you do you take a lot of photos and? Yeah, I've always taken a lot of photos and GPS coordinates, and um, you know, again, just going back to my interest in the Star Wars films, I've I've tried to record a lot of the conversations I've had with people, interviews I've had with people. Um, I've been able to meet a lot of the guys who worked on those early films. Um, I've heard a lot of great stories. You know, met a lot of, of great people and and really nice, interesting people who who were just very kind to talk to me and share with me so um you know I've, I've always tried to document as much as i could i've never really done anything with that material uh i mean we've sort of we've, we've posted bits and pieces on the prof store site we've had um some photos from some of my tunisia trips and things like that but um we haven't done that much with it i mean at one point i had this idea that i would sort of go around and interview everyone and then write a book about it which, mm-hmm. you know, at this point, I've, I've sort of given up on that. I mean, the definitive making of books have really been written now by Jonathan Rinsler, uh, who did the Star Wars book, the, the Indiana Jones book. You know, the ones I mean, the big yeah, hardcover book. Yeah, they're making And then the Empire yeah, Strikes Back one comes out, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks from, what, three weeks, two weeks, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, but, you know, they're fantastic. I mean, they're like yeah. the chronicle of what happened, and they're written with full access to the Lucasfilm archives, which is, the best collection of information that anyone's going to have. And, you know, they're based on interviews that were done at the time, which are always going to be more vivid and, and more accurate than, than any interview that I would go do today. So, um, you know, he, he's really done that. But actually on this last book, the Empire book, I, I helped Jonathan out a bit with um, identifying some crew members in some of the photographs of the book and doing some captions and things like that. So, oh, cool. yeah, it was fun for me just to sort of be involved in some small way, you know. Yeah. Well, those are great books. I mean, they're just, for people like us, it's just like uh, candy. <laughs> just like, yeah, wow, exactly. Awesome. Exactly. I mean, I can't, I can't wait to get my Empire book. And then I assume, you know, in another three years, he'll do Jedi. I hope he will. And, yeah. and that'll get the same treatment. Yeah, I think I read an interview, maybe as an insider or something, where he was saying that he hopes to, but it hasn't been, I guess, got right. a green light yet. I guess, but I can't see why they wouldn't do it, you know? Yeah, so hopefully. yeah, I think the Empire one will do really well. And it seems like as you get forward, you're going to have more information about these movies anyway. So I'm sure there's a yeah. ton of information about Jedi. Right. Yeah, they def- stuff was definitely better documented. You know, I think on Jedi, they had a documentary film crew going around every day while they were shooting. So hmm. they got lots of material that they haven't, haven't yet shown to the public. Yeah. Maybe some of it will end up on the Blu-ray. <laughs> that comes out, I guess, next year. That'd be cool. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, you know, I always have high hopes for this stuff just as far as seeing new content because, I mean, in addition to collecting props and things from the Star Wars and Indiana Jones movies, I, I collect just anything related to the production, so paperwork, documents, photographs, you know, anything like that. So I just love seeing new material, uh, and I'm, I'm optimistic about these Blu-rays. You know, hopefully they'll they'll go the extra mile and really put together some good content for us. Yeah. So as a prop collector, do you find going to the actual filming sites has kind of the same um, sort of same rewarding experience as actually handling like the original props? Because you, you sort of are like visiting the movie in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very similar. You know, it, it's all about just kind of connecting with a, a film you love and just getting a different perspective on it or a different insight into it. You know, when you go to the locations and you sort of see that this bit was shot over here and this bit was shot over there and it's edited together in a different way, you have a completely different picture in your mind of the landscape and things than you do when you sit down and watch the movie, you know? Yeah. And then you go back and watch it and it's always kind of different to you. It's really interesting. Um, but, it's you know, it's the same thing with a prop. Like when you get a prop and you see some detail on it, that you've never seen before, you never saw in the film or in photographs, you know. Um, the first thing I always look at on a prop is like the interior or whatever you wouldn't see on camera, right. you know, and it's, uh, it's it's always interesting. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a similar feeling. Yeah. Yeah, I know 
um, you and I visited a collector back in, I don't know, 2006 or something. And I won't go into the details, but I remember he had a really cool prop. And the first thing um, Stephen Lane wanted to do was open it up and see what the inside of it looked like. And oh, yeah. Like, wow. Sounds like Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was uh, pretty cool. Just just because you do actually, I mean, if something can be removed and put back the same way, you can actually learn quite a bit from it. Yeah, and, you know, it's fascinating how much work goes into some of these stuff, things that's completely unappreciated, you know. I mean, there's there's pieces that were intended to have X, Y, and Z function that it just never appears at all on screen. Right. Um, and that was like, with you know, to go back to the idol, that was one of the great things about the idol was I'd seen a million replicas of it, and they were all just solid cast resin. So to get this one that was a hollow fiberglass, and there was a chunk knocked out of it, so you could kind of look inside with a light and see how the... The eyes were glued in, these baby doll eyes. Um, it, it was just really interesting. You know, there was a lot more going on with that piece than there is in just a resin pole out of a mold. Yeah. So I know one of the other um, film franchises you're a fan of is Ghostbusters. Have you ever gone to any filming sites from, from that movie? Um, I don't think so. Not really. I, I haven't actively pursued any of that stuff. I know there's some information on the internet, and I've looked at it. Um, you know, I think the firehouse interior is, is in downtown Los Angeles somewhere, uh, apparently, like, in a rough neighborhood, and you can't really get into it unless you have a reason to be there, like you're shooting or something. Um, obviously, the exterior of the firehouse is in New York, and I think they have one of the Ghostbusters signs there, the sign from Ghostbusters 2, which you can go and see. Um, and I know a few friends of mine have gone and looked at that and sent me some cool pictures and stuff. But um, I've, I just, you know, I love Ghostbusters. I've just never gone to that extreme of trying to track down locations and things. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I remember um, I visited you in Maryland years and years ago before you um, moved out to Los Angeles. And you had that uh, proton pack, the stunt one. That, right, uh, that Sony came, sold. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I got to, you know, handle it and look at it. And it's like, oh, this is so cool and everything. And then when I went to the um, Out of This World exhibit. It's there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, from the Sci-Fi Museum. It's like, okay, now that, that prop that you used to own is literally in a museum, which is, you know. I know. It's painful, actually. That's, <laughs> I would say that's, that's probably my single biggest prop regret, if you will, is letting go of that thing. Um, because... You know, I don't have anything Ghostbusters now. I don't have anything else. And so, I mean, I, you know, I've, like all collectors, I've turned things over. You know, I've, I've uh, had to sell pieces to bring new pieces in. And, of course, there's stuff I miss. Uh, but that one especially because, you know, where I've, I've sold some nice Star Wars pieces, but I still have some nice Star Wars pieces. So right. it's less painful. But with Ghostbusters, it's like I don't have anything, and there's not even much out there to have. You know, there's only like a handful of key pieces right. that are that are around at all. So. In hindsight, I definitely should have kept that one. But uh, I don't know. Hindsight is twenty twenty. What can yeah. you do? Well, I think we're both the same where we've built our collections by, you know, selling off some of the children, so to say, to get to get some new pieces. But uh, Yeah, you have to, you know. I mean, everyone does that. Everyone, everyone turns stuff over in their collection for one reason or another, I think. I mean, obviously, you know, we talk to collectors all the time at Prof Store, and it's like, even for guys who have, let's say, near unlimited resources, they can just keep buying, 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 they're going to face a different kind of resource, which is space. You know, at some yeah. point they're going to run out of space. And so then what do you do, you know? And then you have to sort of analyze your collecting tastes, and maybe you have to cut something out, or you're going to focus on this and, and not this so much, or... You know, there's always going to be something that's going to cause people to, to turn pieces over. Yeah. So with the change in the economy, you know, being part of Prop Store, how, what kinds of um, changes have you seen? I mean, do you see people consigning things more just out of, you know, necessity? Do you see people leaving the hobby? Do you see it, you know, attracting people maybe that are looking for um, alternative things to invest money in? I mean, what kinds of things are you seeing that you didn't see maybe like four years ago or three years um, ago even? I mean, I guess it's a little tough for me to say because I've only been with the company for about three and a half years. So I, you know, I don't, I don't have that much historic data to go on, but, right. um, you know, I don't, I don't get any emails from people who are looking to consign stuff because they have to pay the, the mortgage or the rent bill. You know, it's, yeah. um, 
I think we definitely see more people buy things on payment plan, uh, which maybe is just, you know, a sign of people not wanting to, to stretch themselves or to overexpose themselves. Um, you know, it seems like there's more payment plans running, whereas people in the past maybe would have just paid for something in, in one go. Um, mm-hmm. I think we've definitely seen people who have, have wanted to get into it as kind of an alternate investment, you know, with, with stocks and everything being so shaky at the moment. Uh, and, and props seeming, I guess, reasonably stable, you could say. Um, there's, there's definitely been that type of interest as well. So, you know, I mean, interest is strong. I, I, you know, I, I meet new collectors all the time who, who aren't necessarily on the forums or who you haven't necessarily heard of in, in our sort of collecting circles who, who kind of come on strong and, and are really just hungry for stuff and, and eager to get stuck into the hobby, you know? Mm-hmm. So do you find those newer collectors are looking for high-end things from the key films or just they're more interested in just sort of experiencing the hobby and, you know, and... Um, de- definitely some are, you know. Yeah, there's 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 some guys who I've met in the past year or two who they just want to dive in head first, you know. It's like, show me the best stuff that I could possibly get my hands on from X, Y, and Z, you know, and, and from major titles and things. Um, and a lot of guys are, are you know, they, they don't go quite that strong into it. I mean, I think it's natural for collecting anything to sort of start smaller, and then over time you get more interested in it, you know, you, you get more knowledgeable about it, and you build your collection. I think that's just what everyone does. That's the natural process. So uh, we were, I, I see it all over the board, you know, just, just collectors at, at all different levels coming into it. Yeah. And I know there's um, a discussion going on uh, the original prop community forum now where people are talking about kind of prices and how that factors into the hobby. It seems like maybe people who have been around collecting longer or maybe feeling like everything's just driving towards pushing prices up, up, up. Do you have any thoughts on kind of um, what... Um, you know, different levels, how different levels are being affected by pricing. I mean, obviously things, you know, the higher end stuff profiles, you know, those are really getting high prices, but even like with the lost auction, you know, that's just a television series. Um, and there was a lot of it and, you know, still things sold for pretty substantial, um, prices. I mean, do you have any thoughts just on kind of the marketplace and where things are going in that regard? Um, I guess, you know, it's, it's it's kind of tough to say. I mean, I guess the prices are always going to be dictated by the market, basically. So the more interest there is in the stuff, I guess, you know, in theory, the, the higher prices are going to go, which is good if you already have material in your collection and it becomes more valuable. And it's bad if you're out there looking to acquire more material and that material is now more expensive. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it just it seems like a, a natural progression to me. You know, it's... Uh, it's just it's just the way things are going to go. The more the hobby expands, and the more buyers there are, and the more people competing for the same material. Yeah, and do you find, as a dealer in the hobby, that sort of as awareness is growing about the hobby, is that making it easier for you guys to find stuff? Because people, you know, think, oh, this is the studios might think, oh, there's value to this. Who do I go to to sell it? Or do you find it's becoming more competitive to you know, get new material to put on your website and sell? Um, I think it's definitely competitive. You know, there's no doubt about that. Um, at the same time, I think, yes, we do have people coming to us saying, you know, oh, I've only just recently been told that this stuff is valuable. It's been in my garage for 30 years. You know, can we do something with it? So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword, I guess. It goes both ways. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm interested in guns used in movies, and you guys have been real um, pioneers in that side of things, you know, with the bond, the James Bond auction of Christie's and, uh, you know, getting getting some real live fire weapons and stuff. How, where do you see that market? Because I know it's hard to import um, the real weapons into, you know, a lot of European countries and whatnot. Um you know, how do you see that evolving over time? Um, 
Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting question. You know, the guns are almost like their own kind of category. Like you know, I mean, it's it's the type of thing where there's almost like a crossover into firearm collecting. But a diehard prop collector may not necessarily be interested in a prop gun, even if it's from their favorite movie, just because of the the issues involved with it. I mean, right. you know, the thing is, these things, obviously, all the or most of the the weapons used in movies are firearms. You know, they're they're real guns, as you know. Um, so they are controlled by the government. They have to be registered. They have to be shipped from dealer to dealer. There's a lot of hassle compared to something like a rubber gun or, you know, just a prop helmet or something that you put in a box and send to someone. Right. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's an area that, that may develop over time. You know, I think especially in this country with as much interest as there is in, in firearms and movies and the way the two kind of intertwine. And I think, you know, if you read their statistics like, after movies like Die Hard came out, Beretta sales went up, you know, because right. it's such a, you know, because just because people are into that gun now, they've seen it in a movie. So I think that's something where there's there's always going to be interest in, and there'll be more interest in the future, just maybe from a sort of different segment of collectors, you know, almost like a, a unique movie gun collector as opposed to a general prop collector. Right. Um, and, and, you know, even though there's headaches associated with moving that stuff around the world, we do do it. I mean, we can export guns from the U.S. to the U.K. and have them deactivated there and, and available for collectors there. And we've done that, you know, on a number of occasions. Uh, so it's, you know, it, it's all possible, but it's, it's definitely more work. It's more involved than, than just a regular prop. Uh, but the, the, the nice thing about guns, as again, you know, is, is just the provenance that comes with them and this idea of a unique serial number that can be matched to a rental document that basically establishes that, that, yeah, this is definitely the one in the film. Yeah, and then I know you were involved in um, loaning some pieces to the NRA's National Firearms Museum in Virginia. Um, how did yep. you get involved with that? Was it through, um, like, your friendship with Mike Papik, or did they approach you? Uh, yeah, that's, that, that's exactly what it was, actually. Okay. Just uh, I, think, I think Mike Papik, who's an armor here in, in L.A. and has been for many, many years, um, He's had a relationship with the NRA Museum, and you know his stuff is in earlier catalogs from their exhibitions. So he's been loaning him stuff for a long time, and uh, and he just called me and asked me if we'd be open to loaning any of our stuff. And you know, of course, we're happy to do that because it, it promotes the hobby, it promotes us, and it just gets stuff out on display where people can see it. So uh, yeah, I'd like to go see that exhibit. Actually, I haven't seen it. It's in Virginia. I've just seen the catalogs, but. Um, it looks good. You know, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah, there's a lot of really good stuff. Do you have any idea how well it's been received, you know, just by the public in general? Have you gotten any feedback from them? I don't know this one in particular. I know that he said that the last one they, they did was far more popular than any other exhibition they do. Apparently, it's it's a really big, big deal, the, the Cinema Guns ex- exhibitions that they do there. Yeah. Which again, you know, it's, it's like what I'm saying. There's so much interest in in guns in American movies that that just doesn't surprise me at all, you know. Yeah, well, it's kind of interesting because I mean, we were both at the um, Stembridge Collection auction that Little John's put on, and it seemed like yeah. almost every person in the room were they were not movie prop collectors, and yeah, that's right. And it seemed to be a, even a factor if something was. Um, converted to blank fire. I mean, I think a lot of them were seeing them as just guns for sale, you know, and it was kind of inconsequential if they were used in movies or not. Um, but it also there yeah. were, it, it seemed like there were people that were really into it that, you know, weren't really, like you said, in our circle, but they were, you know, looking for a gun that is used by John Wayne and things like that, you know, really iconic actors and, um, I don't know. It's just kind of a really strange mix of um, people. Oh that yeah, were there. yeah. No, it, it definitely was. I mean, I think again, you get into this thing of of crossover collecting, where you know John Wayne collectors are probably not even necessarily movie collectors. They're more like Western collectors. Right. Western collectors have their own sort of segment of collecting, where you know they might be interested in stuff that was used by real cowboys, like historic cowboy figures, as well as. John Wayne or Clint Eastwood or those types of people. Um, so, yeah, no, that, that, that was definitely an interesting auction. Uh, and like you said, I mean, there were sort of the handful of people in the room that we knew and recognized, and then 
there were guys who seemed to look at a gun that was modified for a movie and think it was trash because it had been modified for a movie. And then there were those Western collectors who were after all the, the revolvers and such. Yeah, and I think the really most bizarre thing for me walking in there and not really knowing what to expect was there were just guns on endless tables. Just There was no order to it. They were just put on the table. No, they weren't locked <laughs> down. They're laying on top of each other. I mean, it's just sort of like a yeah. flea market, basically. Yeah, it was a little like that, you know. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess that's just down to gun laws and the way you can have that material out if you have a gun license and you're conducting an auction like that, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was nice from a from a bidding point of view that you could just walk up and handle anything you wanted to handle. <laughs> if you could find yeah. it. <laughs> it. It was the only time I've ever walked into a room with that many guns in it and just had everyone handling them in a big free-for-all. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty um, surreal, I think. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. So, um, Star Wars Celebration, was it five? Was Celebration five, yeah. We just was that last month? That it was last month. Yeah, it was okay. in Orlando in August. And you had um, you had like a prop panel, correct? Like where you talk about movie props. Yeah, we did, which we've done in a couple of the other Star Wars shows, and um, we generally just try to give an an overview on collecting and and cover all the basics of you know how to get material, where material comes from, how to know if things are authentic, what kind of research to do, etc. Um, we did this one a little bit differently. We made it much more oriented on questions. So we just spent a lot of time taking questions from the audience. And that was a really good way to do it, actually, because these things tend to wind up being just like a group of people, uh, a panel of people at a table sort of talking at a room with very little feedback. And it's kind of dry. Right. So when we got into this question and answer thing, it was a lot more lively. And I think it kind of got people thinking a little more. And uh, yeah, it just, just went over really well. So who else was on the panel? Uh, so the panel was myself, uh, Stephen Lane, Tom Spina, Rob Klein, Darren Simpson, and Gus Lopez. And what were some of the more interesting questions you guys got? Um, hmm, they're in my memory. <laughs> uh, I mean, was it was it more people who just weren't collectors and they just had real, you know, rudimentary kind of questions, or was it more? Um, no, there's some good ones. You know, there were people asking specifically, like, what happened to this? What happened to that? You know, someone was saying, what happened to the interior of the Falcon set? Does, does okay. we film that? And obviously we know from photographs and things that all that was scrapped and burnt on the L Street backlash. So we can kind of talk about that. And, um, you know, I remember someone was asking about wardrobe and how come wardrobe is so scarce in the world of Star Wars as, as opposed to props. Mm-hmm. And we were saying, you know, the wardrobe something that Lucasfilm was more actively trying to keep hold of. Obviously, it was made in lesser numbers for principles. Uh, the, the pieces that have come out, obviously, have come out through the, the wardrobe rental company, Bermans and Nathans. Um, and, yeah, there was, there was definitely some interesting discussion there. And do you guys have any other um, big events like that in Comic-Con that you're going to be doing anytime soon or are those really the two big ones that you guys go um, and exhibit at and whatnot? Yeah, there's nothing else on the books. I mean, we've basically started in this role now where we do Comic-Con every year, so I'm I'm sure we'll be at Comic-Con next year. Uh, And then Stephen and Tim and the guys in England had done Celebration Europe, and I guess that was a good experience for them. So we decided we would do the celebration here in Florida. But I I assume the next celebration in the U.S. is not for a couple of years now. So, um, you know, we'll probably consider doing that one when it comes around. But other than that, it's it's pretty much just Comic-Con for us. I mean, anything outside of driving distance to L.A. is a much greater challenge logistically just to get material in and out. Right. So you know, when they have a show in Florida, we have to ship everything there. And then at the end, we have to pack everything up and ship it back. So it's expensive and it's a lot of work. Um, whereas, you know, Comic-Con obviously is also expensive and a lot of work, but at least we can put our stuff in a van and drive it down. It makes it a lot easier. Yeah. And did you guys, um, like overall looking back at Comic-Con, um, in terms of mainstream media interest, did, did you, I know you ended up on G4, right? 
Yeah, we were on G4. I think we had a lot of media attention, you know, more than, than we did the year before. Um, we had a handful of different crews come through, and actually one of them, uh, a Japanese crew called Time Warp or Time Warp USA that has a television show that's all about um, the movie industry in Los Angeles and things like that. They just did a follow-up thing with us where they've done a – it came out to our, our L.A. facility and shot a whole episode which will be airing, I guess, sometime in the next few months, and it'll be on YouTube also. Um, and I remember also at Comic-Con, there was, we, maybe you were there when these two girls came through with this big documentary. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Those, those two female hosts, and they were just sort of bantering back and forth about all the props in our display cases. And they so actually seem, I, they seem to know what they were talking about too, right? Yeah, they did. <laughs> and I still don't know what that was for. The only thing I can think is maybe it was the, Morgan Spurlock Comic Con documentary that I heard about, um, but no one from the crew would like address us. Or something. Yeah, sort <laughs> of came through and and filmed and ran off. So I don't know. Maybe we'll see it that footage somewhere. Yeah. But um, yeah. There's there's always a lot of media. Uh, we got some good coverage from the original prop blog. I'm pleased to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what's funny is you know who I really want to do one of these podcasts with. Who's that? <laughs> Your buddy, Mr. Hill. Who's my buddy? <laughs> Dan Hill? Yeah. <laughs> oh, why? Because <laughs> he just, wanted, first of all, he cracks me up. And uh, second of all, I think it'd be really interesting to talk to someone who doesn't collect props, but who is, you know, kind of immersed in this world every day. Yeah. Because he, he has such a different sort of perspective on things yeah he does have a couple of props now also the sort of you know you can't stay away from you broke him down <laughs> yeah definitely i mean he loves movies you know which is part of the reason that that he's there that he works with us um but yeah it was only a matter of time before he started getting into it and then at the star wars show last month he was obsessed with this 12 inch boba fett exclusive figure so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should you should talk to him. I'll tell him you want to interview him. I'm sure he'll be up for it. <laughs> well, actually, if you go to the prop store website and you look at his bio, because I just pulled it up, because I read this once, and it just, for some reason, things just strike me funny sometimes. And it says, uh, Dan relocated to California in 2008 seeking work in the entertainment industry. And soon after, found himself working for a prop store. Like, that's the consolation prize or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hopefully, it's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So uh, anyway, well, I'll tell him. I'll tell him you want to do one. I'm sure he'll be up for it. Yeah, he's on my list. Well, because I always see him at Comic Con, and I don't know for some reason he his personality. He just he has yeah, like, some alliance that just crack me up. So he's a funny guy. Yeah. So, um, looking back to before you worked for Prop Store, did you when you were going to college? Did you have any idea this is the direction your life was going to go in, or was it sort of no, no. Looking back, I would have to say I didn't. I mean, um, you know, when I was in college, I was studying economics and also film production, which, I don't know, a film a film production course in, I think, anywhere outside of kind of the major universities that strive on that. It's, it's not necessarily, I don't know, it just didn't seem that serious to me. You know, your professors were not guys who had, who had worked on big, big films. They were guys who had shot industrial videos and stuff like that. So, right. uh yeah, not not to not to knock the school or anything, but it, it just it felt like it was a long way from from the entertainment industry that's actually making the kind of films that I was interested in. So I always kind of had this idea that I would move to California and, and get involved in movies in some way. But I definitely didn't have any idea at that point that it would be the way that it, that it's gone. Yeah. So, where do you see yourself going in the future? Do you think someday you might get into actually? making films like doing any documentaries about um i don't know it just seems knowing you it seems like you've always been kind of interested in in the behind the scenes um kind of stuff and you've you've spent so much time um because it's not just collecting props for you it's like learning how things are made you know getting perspectives from the people and it just seems like there could be this great documentary that uh about yeah i mean i'd you know i'd I'd love to be involved in more stuff like that um you know i i actually i 
just working on writing this article for the Star Wars Insider, the official Star Wars magazine, all about sort of looking for the Endor bunker location. Uh, uh, we spent a lot of time looking for that one and, and finally found it earlier this year. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm always interested in doing more of that kind of stuff, and we're always trying to develop more of that stuff on the Prop Store site, sort of like the videos that we did on the Nostromo restoration. Right, right. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to not just collect this stuff, but to kind of document it and talk about it, especially the key stuff. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know where it'll all go. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly keeping me busy at the moment, and, and it's all fun. So it's all good, really. Yeah, and how has your passion for collecting props and costumes changed over the last couple of years? Like, are you sort of getting to where you're happy with what you have in your collection, or you know, do you get? Um, I, I would say I, I, it's probably just you know being around this stuff constantly every day has probably just enabled me to kind of refine my taste, you know. Right. Um, and I guess what I've learned is like you look at something and you say, that's really great. And it's like, everything is great. You know, I mean, (laughs) if I go through the warehouse, it's like almost everything in here is fantastic. So you just, you got to kind of learn to learn, learn what really does it for you and what, what really grabs you. And I mean, I'm, you know, I'm just excited today about collecting as I ever have been. I, I still get excited about stuff. I, I think I find stuff that fits into my sort of focus less and less often. Um, it does seem like it's more of a challenge, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I still love it. Definitely. Yeah. So is it, does it take a lot more now to really, you know, excite you than it, than it I used think, to? I think it does. Yeah. I mean, which, you know, which I think is just natural. I mean, when I got some, of, I remember some of the earliest props I got were, uh, a, Roman cavalry sword and shield from Gladiator. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just like blown away by those. You know, um, and now obviously since then I've, I've seen a number of those, and I've seen lots of principal stuff from Gladiator, and and uh, you know, so so the effect that those pieces had on me at that time, they would not have on me today. But you know, that's just natural, and I think everybody goes through that. Yeah, and do you find that things are getting better in terms of? Um authenticity and fakes in the marketplace and uh you know sort of the waters we navigate as collectors and uh like do you you think that people are collectors are more savvy now than they were maybe like five years ago in terms of um, being more cautious about what they buy and and checking things out and whatnot i think so yeah i mean i think you know, there's so many resources out there now that weren't necessarily available before. You know, I mean, your blog is a great resource, and, and there's different sites on the, the web that are geared towards a specific focus, like an alien's message board or something like right. that. You know, there's, there's so much data on there where these guys don't just have a kind of general uh, understanding of how props work. They have a specific, you know, knowledge of something where they've really sat down and studied it. And, and you can kind of call on these people um, and and use that to your advantage. You know, not that you should take everything you read on the web as gospel, because I read a lot of stuff out there that I don't think is correct at all. But I think there's there's definitely more people paying attention to the things that are that are being said. You know, and it's just you know it's just ask questions and, and do research. And the more people get that and understand that, the, the better off they'll be. You know. Yeah. Cool. I mean, what's your feeling? Do you think people are are paying more attention? Um, yeah. Well, yes and no. I get a lot of um, I get a lot of calls and emails from people that ask pretty sophisticated questions and uh-huh. seem to really be putting effort into doing their own diligence, but also trying to um, make sure that they're asking questions to make sure they're they're doing it right i guess is the way to put it and but then there's some people who don't really seem to be collectors maybe they've stumbled across one thing that interests them and they just want a yes or no answer can you tell me if this is real or not and it's like well it's not that easy or you know maybe i don't want to put myself in that position if you know it looks like it maybe isn't well, there's always going to be those types of green people who are just sort of 
you know, one-hit wonders. They're not really collectors or anything. They just kind of have a passing interest and then and then move on. So, I mean, we see that stuff too. You know, we get calls like that all, all the time. Um, but it, but certainly from people who I think are sticking with it and are more serious collectors, I think, you know, we we see them getting it a lot more and having a better understanding of props and collecting and everything. Yeah, I think I think in some cases I'm sort of challenged just to try to figure out how to help people and usually what i'll do is i'll like if they want to know if something's real i'll ask them well why why do you think it's real and kind of put it back on them to sort of reflect back on why why would they think it's real and i think a lot of times i then i won't get an answer or they'll sort of say oh yeah okay (laughs) you know because i you know i always tell people well you know there has to be something there where it has to be based on something concrete, not just, you know, because something's on eBay and someone says it's real, it's real. That's not really, you know, good enough yeah, in most cases. Yeah. But there's just so much more information out there now. I mean, I remember, you know, five or six years ago before I was with Prop Store, like talking about Superman costumes with people and mm-hmm. just, you know, debating about the whole, you know, these, these fake suits that float around and how do you know, what do you look for? And, what does it mean when it says color in it and, and all that, right. you know, and, and at that time, I think in general, people didn't really know, but now there's just so much more information. People have researched it. Obviously you've done extensive work on the, the whole Superman costume issue. Um, you know, there's pieces out there that people know are genuine. I mean, I've personally seen stuff in the Warner brothers archives, uh, which I know other people have seen material that's come out of the Warner archive also. So it's, you know, they know what the tells are. They know what to look for. Whereas, you know, if you were trying to collect Superman stuff 10 years ago or 15 years ago, you were climbing a steep mountain. You know, yeah. there's, there's not a lot of info out there to help you. Yeah, well, I was really glad to see in, in the last Julian's auction, I guess it was in July, they had a Superman costume, and it was like a two-page spread with close-up photos, with all kinds of, you know, information and having personally handled a bunch and knowing all the tells, and I don't even put all the tells in my articles. I mean, there's there's specific things that I don't just because they're not out there. And um, yeah, I mean, that was an easy one where it's like, you know, someone asked me, is that legit? And I'm like, you know, based on everything I see, yeah, it looks good. So, I mean, that was yeah. nice to see something that was authentic and was really well marketed and really provided the information people need, you know, to, to know that it was good. So. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So are there any, um, big auctions coming that, you know, you think are going to be particularly interesting or is it, uh, just, you um, know, it seems like there's a lot of auctions, <laughs> you know, this year for some reason, but, uh, yeah, I mean, on a personal level, not really for me, to be honest. I mean, um, you know, obviously they just had this lost auction, but I never really watched that show, so I, I wasn't too worried about it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I guess the most exciting thing for me as a collector is is what material may be out there that I'm not aware of, you know, right. what may be still locked in some closet or in some collection that, that I've never heard of or never seen. Um and, you know, new stuff pops up all the time. I mean, just in the world of Star Wars, you know, just this past sort of month, people were talking about a new Stormtrooper costume that showed up in England that no one had ever heard of. So, you know, stuff like that's really exciting. It's just exciting to think, yeah, this stuff is still out there. I mean, a couple of months ago, there was a, a Man-Ape costume from 2001. Yeah. You know, a full, a full gorilla costume. I mean, that's an amazing thing to turn up in an auction. Uh, so it's, you know, it's 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 great. That's that's the fun part. That's that's what I really enjoy is just discovering and seeing new pieces come to light like that. Yeah. So you haven't given up the hunt. <laughs> I've not given up the hunt. No, I I I, uh, I probably have less leads than I once did, but I definitely still into the hunt. <laughs> yeah. Cool. All right. Well, well, thanks so much for um, taking the time to chat, and uh, I'm sure we'll do one again someday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no it, it, was, it was fun I, I enjoy these i've enjoyed all the ones i've listened to so happy to do it cool well thanks thanks again all right thanks jason all right 
Thank you for listening to our program, Prop Talk. For the latest news about the world of original television and movie memorabilia, please visit us online at www.originalpropblog.com.